0: If you haven't been with us, um, we've been going through the book of Colossians nice and slow. We've been taking our time. Week one, we didn't get past the introduction. Week two, we still didn't get through the majority of chapter one, and we're not going to finish it anytime soon. But we're taking our way through this rich book as we see Paul writing to this church in Colossae. Our, our theme as we go through Colossians is on the screen there for you, all in all, And it's a phrase we'll see in chapter 2, kind of summarized in who Jesus is, that he is truly all we need and in all things. And what we're looking at week after week after week is just who is Jesus? Who did he claim to be? Who has he demonstrated himself to be? And why does that matter? Last week, we saw that Paul challenged these people. Although he encouraged them with the good that was going on, he challenged them to continue to walk worthy of the Lord. That their behavior would match the name Christian as a follower of Christ. And we ended last week seeing Paul bring our attention to the work of God and the way that he has qualified us to be partakers in the inheritance, how he's Conveyed us or delivered us out of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His love, and how He's forgiven us, He's redeemed us, and we have this hope in Him. Well, this week, He's going to continue to press into all that Jesus has done for us and all that Jesus is and who we are in light of that. And so, for context's sake, we're going to pick up back in verse 9 of chapter 1, and we'll read all the way through 23. Here's what we read. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray this morning. Lord, as we come before your word, God, as we look at this letter written by Paul to the church in Colossae, Lord, we we recognize that it is still true today, that there is a spiritual significance that we can glean from even this morning. Jesus, as we look at your preeminence, I pray that you would increase our understanding of your gloriousness, your majestic nature that you are truly the, the image of the invisible God, that all things exist by you, through you, and for you. Whether we know that and believe that and live that, or whether this is the first time we're hearing that this morning, I pray that you would meet us in this space, that your living, active word would pierce our hearts, would challenge our understanding, that there would be much fruit from today's study of your word and that all the glory and the honor would be to you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you're taking notes and you want to write down a title, we'll bring it up for you on the screen. It's just this simple statement, Give me Jesus. What we see going on in Paul's letter to this church in Colossae is that he's been given a report of what's taking place there. Paul himself has never been there. He's in prison as he's receiving this report from Epaphras. And he's heard of some good things going on, of their faith and their hope and their love as we looked at last week. But as we continue through this letter, what you'll see is that there's also these heresies that are making their way within the church. It's incredible that we're only in... The early 60s A.D., and yet already there are things creeping into the church. The enemy is fast at work to try and bring in false beliefs, distortions when it comes to who Jesus is and and who we are in light of that, how we're called to live. These different isms that are coming into the church. Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism means to know these people that claim to have a higher knowledge and intellect and understanding of these things. People that also claimed that Jesus wasn't truly in a physical body, that it was a phantom body, that he was just a spirit, and also claimed that he was not really God, but he was just one of many other angelic beings that were sort of in this middle ground between God and man. People thought that all spirit was good, but all physical things were evil, were wicked, were bad. It led to all sorts of other isms like legalism, asceticism, and many other false beliefs that were beginning to creep into the church. Today, some of those false things, thinking we see come into the church are things like materialism and hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, or even atheism. So many people who are deconstructing their faith today and denying that God even exists. But I love what we see Paul do here in addressing these issues. He hears of what's going on at this church, and he does not make this exhaustive list. Of all the things I've heard you're doing wrong, and let me tell you how all of those things are bad and evil and wicked. Now, he'll call out some of those, but he makes his first and foremost point, you need to know who Jesus truly is. Because here's what he realizes, there are issues at hand, but probably even by the time he's written this letter and it's sent back by a messenger and it is read before the church there, there will be other issues as well, issues that haven't been reported to him. And after those issues, there will be more issues because the enemy is constantly at work. And so instead of trying to address every single issue, he realizes all of these issues have the same solution. And it's Jesus. It's that you would know who Jesus is truly. If you understand that, that's going to take away all these other issues, all these other fruits that are going on. Let's get to the root of the issue. I'm going to give you Jesus. And I'm going to make clear throughout this letter that he is all you need. You don't need to add to Jesus. But you need to know him, and you need to know him for who he is, for who he claimed to be not for who these people are trying to tell you he is in this church. Simply Jesus. Because Paul knows from first-hand experience that knowing who he truly is and having a relationship with him personally changes everything. Warren Wearsby, when he speaks about the book of Colossians, he says this, Paul did not begin by attacking the false teachers and their doctrines. He began by exalting Jesus Christ and showing His preeminence. That's the starting point for him. Let's start at the foundation of who is Jesus. And from there, we can begin to look at some of these issues and speak to how they don't line up when we know who Jesus is. But it starts with who is Jesus. Many church scholars tell us that this passage we're looking at this morning, written in a a poetic form, was most likely, they believe, actually a song that was sung in corporate worship in the early church. That it was constantly, um, with strings and instruments, sung and declared to continually remind them who is Jesus. So that they would not soon forget. You know, it's one of the many benefits as we sing out worship together. Have you ever got a song stuck in your head that you just could not get out of there? Man, how great would it be if this was the song playing in your mind on constant repeat? Who is Jesus? What has he done for me? Who has he shown himself to be? How great and glorious is he? What are his mighty works? Man, that would be the song on repeat in our head. But regardless of whether it derived from worship or not, it should always draw us to respond in worship. Whether or not this begin as a song, it should always end in a song. As you spend time in the presence of Jesus, looking at who he is in Scripture, your natural response is to give thanks. The natural response is to praise and worship him for who he is. And so we're going to see Paul first distinguish to them who is Jesus in relationship to three different things. In in relationship to God, who is Jesus? In relationship to creation, who is Jesus? And in relationship to the church, who is Jesus? And so the first thing he declares to them is, who is Jesus in relationship to God? And he says this, he is the image of the invisible God. The first obvious fact that Paul is making here is that God is invisible. And this isn't something new and unheard of. In fact, in First 1 Timothy 1.17, we read this. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. To God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We then look at First John 4.12, and what does it tell us? No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So Paul says that the God that we, we, we do not see, who is invisible, has been made visible by Jesus. The second thing he wants to make clear, the image of that God is displayed in Jesus. Now according to Genesis chapter 1, you and I have been made in the imago day in the image of God. But I don't think I have to convince you that we are imperfect image bearers that we're a sad excuse if we're all somebody sees and knows about God, that we fall short of the glory of God, that we could never possibly display his, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his love and his care and compassion, and his ability to save to the utmost. We fall short as image bearers. But here what we see in describing Jesus is not that he is an image bearer of God, not that he is in the likeness of God, but that he is the image of the invisible God. The word there, icon, for image, it has two main meanings, that it could be made in the likeness or the manifestation. Now when I say likeness, I want to be clear here. This isn't speaking to the likeness like my son may resemble me, where there are similarities that you can see. Oh, yeah, I can see. He looks like his dad. He has his ears or his eyes, hopefully not his nose, but he has some kind of resemblance to him, right? No, but the word likeness that is used here is speaking of an exact likeness. It's the likeness when you look in the mirror, and like it or not, that's who you are. That's a perfect likeness of you. The likeness that we would see on a coin that resembles someone. And when you look at it, you're not going, I have no idea. You know who it is. It's a perfect, exact likeness of them. This is Jesus. He's not similar to God. He is the exact likeness of God. But secondly, the, the manifestation of God. This speaks to the fact that Christ is the image of God in the sense that the nature and the being of God are perfectly revealed in him. Perfectly revealed in Jesus. This is why we read in John 1.18, which begins very similar to the verse we just read. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has represented Him. In fact, that last phrase there, for He has declared Him, it's the term where we get our word exegesis from. And if you don't know that word, it's a term we use to the faithful studying and teaching of God's word, where we bring out the God-intended meaning of a text. Instead of taking our own agendas, our own thoughts, our own ideas, and trying to force them into the word, we let the word clearly speak for itself, clearly show us and display to us what the truth is within it. And here we see God saying, Jesus is that that exegesis of God. He is the clear explanation of who God is, the clear display so that when we wonder what is God like, how does God think, what does God do, we can look to Jesus and have the answer for all of this. John uses the word to say that Jesus is this in John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Philip says, you keep talking about the Father. You know, maybe if we could just see the Father, that's, that's all we need. That would be the icing on the cake. And Jesus says, Philip, how long have you been with me? And you're asking to see the Father? You're looking at him. If you see me, you see the Father. Jesus is the perfect image Of God. We need to look no further than Jesus. What God looks like, how he speaks, how he acts, it's all given to us in real lifetime, crystal clear, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because he is God in the flesh, but more than that, who is he in relation to creation? Because here he's shown us, hey, he's the image of the invisible God, but he is also the firstborn of all of creation. Now, it's very important that we interpret this phrase carefully. At first glance, you could read this, and you could conclude that Christ is a part of creation, that he's God's first created thing, because he's the firstborn of all creation. And in fact, there are some false religions, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who would hold to that interpretation of this verse. And that is why context is so important. If you just pull a verse out of Scripture, out of context, you can make it say anything you want. But when you read it in its context and you let Scripture speak for itself, what do we see? Well, we see we don't even have to leave this chapter. We just continue on and we read how Jesus is described within creation and we see clearly... He couldn't be a created being because he's before all things, because all things exist in him and through him and by him and for him. But also this wrong understanding comes because some have not taken the time to understand the grammar that is being used and the conclusion it draws about Jesus. We read that he's the firstborn. The protokos is the word used. And it's used multiple times within Scripture. We see it also in our text this morning in verse 18, when we read that he is the firstborn from the dead. And clearly we understand that he wasn't the first to ever physically die, but it's speaking to something deeper than that. In Romans 8:29, we read the firstborn among many brethren. Hebrews 1:6 tells us, "But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says that all the angels of God worship him." And even in Revelation chapter one, verse five, we read in from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. The term firstborn has two possible meanings. Priority within time and supremacy in rank. And both of these are fitting with who Christ is. Because when we talk about priority in time, he's before all things. Clearly, Jesus, the one who was there a part of creation and the act of creating all that we know and exists today. He's before all of it. He's outside of all of it. Yet still there are those who would also argue that not only is this speaking about the grammar, but, but what about the, the idea within that culture of a firstborn? What about that understanding that they would have looked at That the ancient custom of the firstborn son within a family came with it a context that they'd be reading this and understanding. That the firstborn son in a family was given the rights and privileges not shared with any of the other children. That the firstborn son also served as the representative and the heir of that family and was given the management of the household. And if we look at this passage through this lens, what do we see? We see Jesus is the father's representative and heir, and has been given management over all of creation and the household, so to speak, of God. He is the head of the church, as we see in our text, and it makes him Lord over all creation. So no matter what angle we want to take at this scripture, we can look at it within its context of what Paul continues to say. We can look cross-references at what else is said of Jesus We can do a word usage and see the exact words used to describe him as a firstborn over all of creation, or we could even look at the word imagery and the context of that culture and how they would have viewed a firstborn. But no matter how you slice it, the only way this text says that Christ is a created being and not God is if you're reading it wrong. It's the only way it's going to say he's anything except for God in the flesh who dwelt among us. And Paul uses verses 16 and 17 to explain this fact. To explain what the firstborn overall of creation looks like. And first he points to the fact that Jesus is the source of all creation. For by him all things were created. And he goes on to, to lay out what that consists of. That heaven and earth, that everything visible and invisible, that thrones or dominions, principalities or powers... And he's even speaking here directly to some of the false beliefs that were creeping into the church there in Colossae, as they believed Jesus was like one of the angels. Here he's saying, no, 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 he's over all of that. He created all of that. Oh, well, he's just one of many spirit beings. No, 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 he's, he's, he's created all things that are visible and invisible. He created all of these things. But the second thing we see is that he is also the agent and the purpose of all of creation. That all things were created through him and for him. We see in this that Paul is actually answering two of the biggest questions that all of humanity has ever asked Who am I and what is my purpose? He would say, All you need to know is who is Jesus, and it answers both of those for you. Because in light of who Jesus is, as the creator over everything, we realize we are his creation. We are made in his image. And my purpose, the text tells me, all things were created by him and for him. So my purpose is to glorify God, the one who created me, the one who made me who I am, gave me the gifts I have, and has called me to live according to his purposes. And in this very statement of who Jesus is, we have the answer to both of those questions. But the third thing he notes here is not only did Jesus create everything, not only was it through him and and by him, but it's also for him, and exists because of him. He's the sustainer of all, of creation. Do you see in our text, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's before all things. John chapter 1 would tell you, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's before all of creation. And in him all things hold together. That phrase literally means that he's holding it actively, consistently together, that all it would take was for him to let go of it, and everything would fall apart. And I wonder this morning, how many of us have come in the building today feeling like we're falling apart, feeling like your life's falling apart, maybe that your faith is falling apart? that your heart is falling apart, that your hope has been shattered, that you have a relationship that is crumbling, well, maybe it's time to come back to the one who holds all things together. The one who tells the ocean how far it can go and says no further. The one who holds the nucleus of an atom together so that when science is trying to figure out how does this stay together, we have it here in Scripture. Jesus holds all things together. This is the reason we live in a cosmos and not a chaos. It's because Jesus is holding it all together. He's the sustainer of all life. And has the power to hold you and all you're going through together. The God that is so vast, he's over all of creation, but the God that is so personal, he calls you Friend and isn't so caught up in holding the galaxies together that he doesn't have time for you in your circumstances right now. He's the God that can hold you together. But then Paul takes it a step further. This is who he is in relationship to God. He's the image of the invisible God. This is who he is in relationship to creation. Man, he's, he's the source of it. He's the, the, the purpose of it. He's the sustainer of it. But then he goes on to say, and who is he in relationship to the church? To this church in Colossae, to the church here in Auburn, who is Jesus in relationship to the church? He is the head of the body, the church. It's been said, you cut off the head and the body dies. Often this is true strategically within battles, within wars, that if you can take out the leaders, many of the soldiers will surrender. Cut off the head and, and the army will give up but it's always true anatomically, the only thing that continues to move around without a head is a cockroach, and you don't want anything to do with that, okay? But also spiritually, without Christ, the church ceases to be the church. It's no wonder why so many churches that no longer recognize Jesus Christ as the head of the church, are no longer speaking the words of God because the mouth is a part of the head. They're no longer hearing from God because the ears are a part of the head. They're no longer seeing the works of God because the eyes are a part of the head. And the one who is meant to lead that church, Jesus, has been cut off from them. He is the head of the church. He is the one making the decisions. He is the one calling the shots, guiding his body, the church. I used to play baseball, and I had this terrible, terrible habit of pulling my head, right? You're going up to bat, and you, you're looking already where you think the ball's going to go, and instead, you're swinging like that, and you're not touching the ball. And they'd always tell you, keep your head in there, because you pull your head, and it's going to affect your swing, and you're never going to hit the ball. The church needs to remember that. Keep the head in there. Don't forget who's the head of the church. It's no pastor or elder. It's Jesus. He's the head of the church, and the moment he stops leading the church, the church dies. The church ceases to do anything effectively. Jesus is the head of the church. And then he calls him this, this statement that that is a perfect bookend to what he started with. He says he is the firstborn from the dead. A moment ago, he said he was the firstborn of all of creation, and now he's the firstborn of all of the dead. And there's this beautiful bookend, from from life to death, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher of your faith. He is all of it. He brought everything into existence, and now he's brought the resurrection from the dead into existence. Was Jesus the first to ever die? No, but he's the first to ever live the resurrected life. That he now makes available and possible for us. There were other men that, and women that Jesus brought back to life like Lazarus. But they were not the firstborn of the resurrection. That was a resuscitation. They would die again. But Jesus was the first to be born into that new life after death. To be the first fruit of it as we can read in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. It says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he has done all of this and Paul says that he might have the preeminence. That he might have the greatness, the importance, the supremacy, the prestige. Because he is before all things. Because all things exist within him. And he is over all of it, and it all exists through him, and it's for him, and by him. And through this text, you continue to see all things, all things, all things, all things, but all of that is under one thing, and it's Jesus, the all in all. And he says that he would have the preeminence, that he would be the preeminent one that this church that is trying to make Jesus on on an equal level with angels. Paul is saying, "No, no, no, he is the one and only, the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Just as we sing today in worship that he has no rival, that he has no equal, that now and forever he reigns. It's Jesus above all, before all, All exists for him. Paul would write in his letter to the Philippians while still in prison that he counted all things as loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. That everything he could accomplish and had accomplished, his titles, everything, it was rubbish, it was garbage compared to knowing Christ. He is the preeminent one. For it pleased the Father in verse 19 that in him all the fullness should dwell. The word fullness here, pleroma, was a word that the Gnostics would use. And it was a word that, that they would use to express the, the total sum of divine powers and attributes. And here Paul is saying that that total sum of all divine powers and attributes, they all converge in one place, in one person, in Jesus. And not that they meet here for a moment while he dwelled among us. Not for a short burst of time, but he says here that they would dwell. And the word used here is not speaking of a temporary housing that they would use on a pilgrimage. Like the tent that Paul says our body is, that's for a little while, but then we put off this tent. That's not the word he's using here to describe the fullness of God dwelling within Jesus. No, it's a permanent resting place, a permanent dwelling place. You see, in the Old Testament, we see times that God's presence would dwell temporarily somewhere, like on a mountain, or in the tabernacle, or even in the temple but now he says it pleased God that the fullness of all the God should dwell within Jesus permanently. That we no longer need to go to the temple, that we don't go to a mountain, that the God who was once far off has been brought near because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why the veil was torn, because now we have access to the Father through Jesus, where where it pleased God that the fullness should dwell. And not only that the fullness would dwell there, but by Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, or things on earth, that all of it has been reconciled by Jesus. To reconcile means to change thoroughly, but specifically within a relationship. It means to change a relationship that has been severed, that is at odds, where there is bitterness or there is animosity against each other, and to change it to this harmonious relationship where there is unity and peace that is now present. He said it it pleased God that by Jesus this would be accomplished. And how was this accomplished by Jesus? Well, the text tells us, by the blood of his cross. And this is an interesting phrase Paul uses, because he'll speak of the cross of Christ many times. He'll speak, he'll speak of the blood of Christ many times, but here he doubles down. Here he throws both of those statements and all of the weight of them into one when he says, the blood of the cross of Christ speaking of the greatness of what Christ has done to reconcile us to himself. And to further explain that incredible fact that was and is, he gives a detailed state of, of who we are and where we were without Christ. He says, "In you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. No matter how we like to view ourselves, Scripture makes clear we weren't quite as put together as we like to think without Christ. He says, without Christ, don't forget, you weren't so polished and perfect and a good standing with him. You were at enmity with God, and you had these wicked thoughts and these wicked actions, and you were, you were against the cause of Christ until Jesus reconciled you to the Father. You were alienated, and you were enemies. We looked at this last week as we saw the significance of him conveying us into his kingdom that spoke to the idea of of one kingdom conquering another and then taking back those conquered people to be among their people. That the work of Jesus in reconciling us takes us as enemies and brings us in and makes us allies. And he does this through his death. And how does he present us to his father? As captives? As enemies? As defeated people without a hope and a future? No, he... He brings us and presents us to the Father holy, consecrated and dedicated for a purpose in His kingdom. And He presents us blameless, a sacrificial term they used to describe that animal that was spotless, that was suitable to be offered as a sacrifice. So when we read that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, that's only because Jesus has reconciled us to make us blameless, to make us able to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is acceptable, because without Jesus, your service is not acceptable. And then he says that it is above reproach, that we are presented above reproach which speaks to a purity in Christ that cannot be justly accused of impurity. That that's how pure and holy and blameless you are because of what Jesus did. That someone couldn't even come before the Father and justly accuse you of impurity because Jesus' work is so complete. That he has not just covered it for a season in hopes that none of it sneaks out or gets seen, but he's washed it away completely. As we looked at last week, that he has cast as far as the east is from the west. This is what Jesus has done for us. To present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He says, If indeed... You continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he speaks here to this reconciliation and also this peace that is ours if we remain in the faith in Christ. He closes this section this morning with this peace treaty from God for us. Whenever two nations that are at war with each other finally stop, when the war finally ceases, they come to sign what we call a peace treaty, to come to terms and an agreement so that the war and the striving can cease. This peace treaty has terms and conditions whereby the relationship between those nations can continue in unity and harmony and peace moving forward. Peace treaties can consist of a number of details, like a designation of borders. We're agreeing that you don't cross here, I don't cross there, this is your area, that's my area. With a discussion of refugees, the prisoners of war, and often the agreement is, okay, you give back our prisoners of war, we'll give back yours, this is part of the agreement of peace. These are the conditions. Even the debts that one nation may owe monetarily to another are discussed in this peace treaty, And in the text here this morning, we read the peace treaty that God has laid out for us who are at enmity with God, who are alienated and enemies of him. The payment was paid in full by Jesus. The monetary amount is already covered on our behalf within this peace treaty. The the hostility, the wall of hostility, that separation between the borders is broken down by Jesus. And the terms are what? That you just continue in faith. That you remain rooted and grounded in his word. That you stay within the context of Jesus. He is your peace treaty. He is your peace. So you depart from Jesus, you depart from peace, but in him we find our peace. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Paul wants to make clear to these people who Jesus is and the peace that can be ours in him. That no amount of good works will get you to that peace. That no amount of enlightenment and knowledge will get you to that peace. It is only going to be found through the payment of Jesus, through his breaking down that wall of separation, when you come to him so he can make you blameless, holy, above reproach before the Father. That's where the peace is. It's found in Jesus. As I invite the worship team to to come on back up, before we close in in a final song of worship, I want to share with you one final thing. I don't know if you realize this. Last year, June of 2021, Juneteenth became a national holiday. Some of you know what Juneteenth is. Some of you don't. Let me explain. In 1863, during the American Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared more than three million slaves living in the Confederate states to be free. But it would take more than two years, however, before news reached the slaves living in Texas. It was not until the Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865, that the state's residents finally learned that slavery had been abolished. And former slaves immediately began to celebrate with prayer, with feasting, with songs, and dance. And then the following year, on June 19th, the first official Juneteenth celebration took place in Texas. The original observances included prayer meetings, and singing of spirituals. And the celebrants wore new clothes that day, representing their newfound freedom because of the Emancipation Proclamation. And why do I bring this up this morning? Because the same tragic reality exists today that those people experienced those two years between the Emancipation Proclamation and the Juneteenth Celebration. Freedom was theirs. It had been signed, it had been declared that all slaves were free. And yet it was a two year gap where they were still living as slaves, not knowing the freedom that was theirs until messengers came to proclaim that freedom. Today, there are people living in our world that are enslaved to sin, that are in bondage to an anxiety about my identity and what is to come for my future and what is my purpose that are bound, not knowing their true identity, their true value and worth, their forgiveness that could take place in Jesus. They are living like those people where the peace treaty has been signed, where freedom has been proclaimed, and it is theirs in Jesus, and yet nobody's came and given them the message. And so they're continuing to live in bondage until someone comes Until the ambassadors of the gospel go and declare to people, you don't have to be a slave anymore. That Jesus has made it so that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom for you. And he calls us as his ambassadors to go with that message of peace. To go and declare to them that the payment's been paid in full. That wall of hostility that existed, it's been broken down. That although you feel so far off, you can be brought near because of Jesus. And what does he require? The first word of the gospel, repent. That you would confess your sins. That you would recognize your need for a Savior. And that you would, by grace, be saved through faith. It's not a work of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And this morning as we close, I'm going to give an invitation and then we're going to close as we have through Colossians. I'm going to invite you to stand and we will close in the prayer that we're, we're memorizing, we're, we're trying to memorize as a church together. But there's going to be people available on both sides of the stage as we close in this final song. And I want to give you the invitation today that if you have not known this piece, and I'm not just saying the, the experience of peace throughout your day, but true lasting peace that passes understanding that guards your hearts and your minds in the person and work of Jesus. We would love to pray with you this morning. Because no matter how much enlightenment and knowledge you have, it's not enough. And no matter how many good works you have done throughout your life, it'll never be enough But when you come to Jesus and you allow his finished work to be enough, the blood on that cross that was spilled for your sins is enough. Which is why Jesus declared on that cross, not it's mostly done, not you've got a little more to add on, but it is finished in Jesus. It's finished. And if you want to experience that finished work, the forgiveness he offers you, the peace that can be yours, so you can live no longer a slave to this world, a slave to your desires, a slave to sin, but a free person who can walk in the abundant life that Jesus offers, I want to invite you first and foremost right now to raise your hand and make that that statement before all of these witnesses here to say, I need that, I want that. Is there anybody here this morning? Well, then I trust and believe this morning that you've experienced that peace. That you know what that newness of life is that exists in Jesus, that is sustained by Jesus. But as we close in a song of worship, the invitation still stands if if you have wandered from that peace, if you're experiencing a life that feels like it's falling apart. And you need to once again have someone just pray that you would be reminded and brought back to that Jesus who sustains all things, who holds them all together. Please don't hesitate to come and get prayer. What we refuse to do here is play church. We want to be the church. And if there's one place you can be honest and you can be real and you can still experience grace and acceptance and forgiveness, it has to be in the body of Christ here in the church. So don't hesitate to come and get prayer. Would you stand with me as we close in this prayer from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 to verse 14. Let's go ahead and read it together. If you don't have it, it's on the screen for you. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.